Welcome everyone to episode 31 of Curseland, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. As always, I am your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope y'all enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. Our first story this episode comes from MysteriousUniverse.org. It's titled, A Farm of the Cursed Kind, and this is written by Nick Redfern. Today, I'm taking a trip back in time, so to speak, to the latter part of the 19th century, and to a strange and bizarre story that revolves around the Hill Farm in Waukesha, Wisconsin. It was, at the time, a 250-acre piece of land owned by John Hill, He was a farmer for whom life was good until, that is, a series of almost unbelievable and diabolical events occurred that would not be forgotten. All was good for the family until John Hill's wife, Magdalena, in 1898, was struck down with a mysterious illness that, seemingly, no one could diagnose. Very oddly, Magdalena's doctor mistakenly killed her when he administered to her not medicine but a lethal poison. A curse was about to be unleashed. The family was utterly devastated, and John Hill soon died too, after falling into a deep depression and refusing to eat. He was soon taken by the Grim Reaper. That he was aged in the extreme at the time probably didn't help. This left the family's six children to ensure that the farm continued to prosper. It has been said that they failed miserably, although in fairness, and as will now become apparent, The odds were massively stacked against them from the very beginning. And when those same odds are clearly saturated by supernatural phenomena, the chances of a positive outcome are slim. One of the sons, who had a number of physical handicaps, passed away. Another, Oscar, was killed on the property by a large bull. He was crushed to an absolute pulp by the marauding, crazed beast. His internal organs pummeled beyond saving. Two of the still-then-surviving children of John Magdalena, Hulda, and William also met grisly ends. The family was originally from Germany, and a local man, Elder Krauss, who was in their employ, threatened to tell the authorities they were German spies. That this was, by now, when the First World War was raging, effectively meant that Hulda and William could have found themselves in deep trouble. The truth, though, was that the family was utterly loyal to the United States, and Krauss was simply engaged in a callous piece of blackmail, along with a neighboring boy, Ernest Fence. On one particular day, Krauss turned up the heat and demanded money, and lots of it, or else. William well and truly flipped his lid. He took his shotgun and blew away half of Fence's face. Krauss fled the scene, but William was far from done. He marched to the barn and killed his pet dog and five horses, after which he then killed himself with the very same shotgun. Hulda followed suit and took her life by swallowing a large mouthful of poison and savagely slashing her wrists, thus ensuring her a painful death. For the next two decades, the hill farm remained empty, which is not exactly surprising when one considers the notoriety and unbridled death that was attached to the old farm. But in 1932, A man by the name of Pratt blew himself to smithereens while dynamiting rocks on the property. He surely should have known better than to blast rocks at the sight of so many deaths. Pratt clearly didn't think of the possibility of him becoming the farm's next victim. Sixteen years later, the Ransoms, Ralph and Dorothy, bought the farm. They too should have known better. Five years later, their daughter, Anita, and their son-in-law, Andrew Kennedy, moved into Hill Farm. Both of their children were destined to die young. In 1963, seven-year-old Philip drowned in Lake Mondata in Madison, Wisconsin. Then, in 1972, five-year-old Ransom Kennedy was crushed to death by a piece of farm machinery in the very same barn where William Hill killed himself and his beloved animals all those years earlier. Cursed? Don't bet against it. Well, there you have it, listeners. When I named this show, I didn't think I intended it to be literal, but that's a pretty ugly one, huh? The 
And now, from Utney.com, The Tree Guardians of Kyoto. This is by Winifred Bird from Tricycle. The stone wall that runs along the lower boundary of Honan-in Temple on Kyoto's hilly eastern edge marks a striking boundary in this ancient center of Buddhist practice. To the right, a jumble of clay-tiled roofs, garden walls, and alleyways falls to the basin where the heart of the city sprawls gray and low. To the left, beyond the wall, a mass of wild camellias, bamboo fronds, oak trees, and pine boughs rises towards the summit of Mount Daimanji. From that green world floats birdsong and crow calls, the smell of new leaves and the cool, moist air of the mountains. It is hard to imagine a more inviting sanctuary in the city. I came to Honan Inn on an April morning this year to ask its head monk, Shinsho Kajita, about the role his temple plays in preserving Kyoto's trees. To many Japanese, the question would seem a strange one. It is Shinto shrines, not Buddhist temples, that are viewed as the guardians of wild, sacred nature here. Their grounds are often wooded, and in recent years they've been recognized as crucial islands of urban biodiversity. Buddhist temples, by contrast, are associated with manicured gardens and zealous gardener monks who sweep away each leaf the moment it falls. Only occasionally have Japanese monks protested dams or other threats to the forest. For the most part, unlike their counterparts in Thailand and Cambodia, they're not known for environmental activism. Yet Honan Inn sits on 27 acres of deep, dark forest inhabited by badgers, bullfrogs, snow monkeys, and dozens of other creatures. One massive old muku tree beside the main temple is currently the shared living quarters of a flying squirrel, an earl owl, and a migratory brown hawk owl. Another's roots shelter a fox den. Honan, the founder of Pure Land Buddhism, chose this forest as a site for religious training 800 years ago because of the pure spring that flowed beneath its trees. Nearly five centuries later, a temple was built in his memory and the forest claimed as its grounds. It has remained a refuge ever since. This, at least, was what my companion, Hiroyuki Watanabe, told me as we walked along that lush lower wall and then turned onto a path that cut diagonally inward toward the temple. Watanabe is perhaps the foremost expert on the city's sacred groves. After spending his career as an ecology professor trekking through the forests of Southeast Asia, he retired and turned his attention homeward. In 2015, he published a book on the forests of Kyoto's shrines and temples, and today he serves as vice president of Japan's Society for the Study of Sacred Groves. He says that of the 234 officially recognized large and important trees in Kyoto, 110 are on temple grounds. In other words, Honan Inn is far from unique. Buddha, of course, attained enlightenment sitting under a tree, and both Buddhism and Shintoism have a long tradition of religious training in forests, Watanabe told me the previous morning as we sat in the lobby of my hotel, planning our tour of temple trees. With long, wispy hair brushed back from a tanned face and a biker bag slung over one shoulder, he looked younger than his 78 years and as eager as I was for an urban trek. He explained that many temples maintain groves of trees to create a quiet, peaceful atmosphere rather than for explicitly conservationist reasons. Still, they provide the accidental benefit of habitat for birds, insects, and rare old trees hard-pressed by urban development. The first temple Watanabe took me to, however, contained nothing remotely resembling a sacred grove. Higashi Hoganji's massive prayer halls sit inside a walled compound a few blocks from Kyoto's main train station, surrounded by a gravel courtyard whose single pine tree looks as formal and forlorn as a kid in a tuxedo. This is what most Japanese people think of when they think of a temple, Watanabe told me as we passed through the wooden doors high enough to accommodate a giant and into a dim, wax-scented hall. Looking down at the two-foot floorboards beneath my feet, I was suddenly reminded of the other impact Kyoto's temples have had on surrounding forests. According to historian Conrad Totman, the construction of monasteries consumed over 700 million board feet of old-growth timber during the three centuries following Buddhism's arrival in Japan around 550 CE. 
pressure on Kyoto's forests eased somewhat in the 9th century as monument building went out of fashion, but only in the 17th century did extensive regulations emerge that allowed forests to fully recover. We left Higashi Honganji and Watanabe led me east toward the leafier Higashiyama district. Eventually, he paused on a shady lane and pointed to a gnarled camphor tree. This is one of the trees that Shinran planted, or so they say, he said. This tree stands just outside the walls of Shorin-in Temple, its moss-covered roots as green and sinuous as a nest of snakes. Legend has it that the founder of Jodo Shinshu planted it, and four others here in the late 12th century, when he was a young student at the temple. Watanabe views this legend skeptically. Magnificent as the trees may be, he doubts that they're quite that old. Still, their spiritual aura has done more to protect them over the centuries than their official designation as a natural treasure awarded more recently by Kyoto's municipal government. Those huge roots tell the history of this place, the elegant elderly woman selling entry tickets inside the gate told us with a smile. We would never cut them down. From Shorin Inn, we headed northwest to the confluence of the Kamo and Takano rivers, there, surrounded by clinics, restaurants, and schools, stands a 31-acre primeval forest. This hushed and shadowy world belongs not to a temple, but rather to one of Kyoto's most revered and ancient Shinto shrines, Shimogamo Jinja. Religious prohibitions on cutting wood, hunting, and fishing within its boundaries, and more recently its designation as a UNESCO World Heritage Site, have kept it more or less intact for at least two millennia. We stepped inside the entrance to the woods and paused at a signboard with a painted map. High above us, thousands of newly formed leaves rustled in the wind. Do you see that empty spot? Watanabe asked, pointing to a corner of the map. There used to be a temple there. In fact, although it is hardly mentioned now, the Buddhist Junguji, meaning shrine temple, shared Shimogamo's grounds for 1,000 years. The same was true at many shrines throughout Japan. For 13 centuries, the two religions were closely entwined. It was only in the late 1800s that Japan's government forcibly separated them, destroying many temples and establishing Shinto as the state religion. This history is one of the reasons why Watanabe believes that temples deserve nearly as much credit for protecting Kyoto's important trees as shrines do. We don't know because the historical documents to prove it are gone. But it's very likely that the monks helped care for and protect this forest during the period in which the temple existed, he said. By this time, the sun was low, and after a quick stop to see a pair of rare red bark oaks outside Kinkaju-ji, the tourist besieged Golden Temple, we called it a day. The next morning, we set out for Honan Inn, skirting a string of verdant temples and shrines lining Daimonji's base. We made our way to the path that cuts into Honan Inn's grounds passed through a small but beautifully arranged garden and arrived at the door of a simple post and beam building. This is both the temple's spiritual center and the headquarters for the Reverend Kajita's many cultural and environmental endeavors. Ever since Kajita took over the temple from his father in 1984, he has been deeply engaged with the natural and human communities surrounding it. In 1985, he launched a forest classroom to hold nature walks and talks on the grounds. That project evolved into a citizen-led forest center that both helps to manage the forest and uses it as an outdoor education center for children. We knocked on the door and were admitted by an assistant who led us to a tatami-floored room and set three cups of tea on the table. A moment later, Kajita pushed open the sliding paper screen. He was wrapped in simple black robes, his most outstanding feature a pair of animated eyebrows that jumped up and down on his round, shaved head as he greeted us. I had come with the intention of finding out about his work to protect urban trees, but the question I found myself even more interested in was how those trees have affected Kyoto's Buddhists. As he settled into a low chair, I asked him how he felt toward the forest. I think that temples in the woods serve as places for us to become aware that plants and animals and humans are all fellow beings, he replied. You've probably heard of reincarnation. Long ago, before I was born, I may have been a cherry tree, and when I die, I might become a camellia. He giggled at this thought. I nearly did, too. It's a possibility I'd never imagined before. A cat, perhaps, or a worm, but a tree? 
Kajita explained that early Buddhist thought in India generally considered only animals to be fellow beings containing the potential for enlightenment. As the religion traveled northwest to China, however, that concept expanded to include plants. When it arrived in Japan, it layered neatly on top of Shintoism, which taught respect and awe for all of creation. As humans, we live within a web of connections to many other living beings, he continued. Encountering the forest and its creatures every day, I'm able to confirm within myself that at some point I may have existed in those forms. It's not just that the cherry trees are beautiful or the forest calms us. In the end, it is to live with the understanding that we are fellow living beings and the desire that eventually we will reach enlightenment together. We talked for a few more minutes, and then Kajita excused himself for another appointment, giving us permission to wander through the temple on our own. Three camellia trees were blooming in the raked sand courtyard, and someone had carefully placed their brilliant blossoms everywhere. On the floor of the prayer hall below the gaze of a golden Buddha floating on the surface of a fluted basin in the garden, gracing the lip of a stone fountain, we continued out to the main garden. There was the muku tree Watanabe had told me about, its thick old trunk sheltering sleeping owls and squirrels, or so I imagined, and there was a Japanese Bodhi tree, common in the temples of both Japan and China. From the garden, we passed through a thatched gate and down a shaded lane to the temple graveyard. A weeping cherry tree drooped over the stone markers, its profusion of blossoms, a silent echo of Kajita's words. The path continued to the left, then veered steeply into the woods. We followed it quietly, each lost in our own thoughts. I was conscious of being absorbed in the aspects of the forest that Kajita had characterized as surface distractions, its beauty, its calming, cocoon-like quiet. The deeper connection to the trees that he had spoken of still felt abstract. Yet, if any city in the world is suited to seeking that connection, it is Kyoto. For that, I now knew we have 50 generations of Buddhist monks to thank. Now a story from Discover Magazine. This is entitled, When Snails Attack, The Epic Discovery of an Ecological Phenomenon. The year was 1983. Star Wars Return of the Jedi had just hit theaters, the police's every breath you take topped the charts, and Amos Barkai was a new graduate student at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. He'd recently gotten his bachelor's from Tel Aviv University and was excited to start his graduate work under George Branch. Little did he know he was about to discover an ecological phenomenon that would earn him a prestigious paper in science. Branch had been investigating the effects of bird guano runoff from islands on life in the intertidal, the zone between high tide and low tide, and he was interested in seeing whether the effects extended into deeper waters. Since Barkai was an experienced diver, he'd worked as a professional diver for the Israeli Navy and as a commercial diver after that. Branch sent him a hundred kilometers or so away to Saldana Bay, a protected coastal kelp ecosystem. I packed him off to one of the islands we'd been working on, called Marcus Island, Branch explained. I told him, you're fully qualified as a diver, so I want you to go and do some exploratory dives. Take a look around there and see if you can find anything interesting. It just so happened that the area was experiencing a once-in-a-lifetime storm with waves over 18 meters high. I didn't know I was exposing him to hell on earth, and he came back completely shell-shocked, said Branch. I think he wondered what kind of supervisor he was getting involved with. But once things calmed down a bit, Barkai did get in the water and looked for evidence that the birds nesting on Marcus and other nearby islands were affecting the communities near shore. He didn't find any, but he did notice something strange. Near to Marcus was Malgus Island, so named for the gannets, a kind of seabird which nest there. Malgus is Old Dutch for mad geese, which looks entirely similar to Marcus Island from the surface. The seabed, however, told Barkai a very different story. Although they're just a few kilometers apart, the species he saw were strikingly different, he said. West Coast rock lobsters, or creef as they're known locally, were everywhere around Malgus. Several hundred of them per square meter crowded into crevices and under ledges. 
There was basically nothing else. To find anything that wasn't a lobster, he had to peek under the holdfasts connecting the kelp to the substrate. There, he found mussels and a few Bernapina papyracea, small whelks, a kind of marine snail. Around Marcus Island, though, the bottom was covered with anything but lobster, Barkai said. A dense mat of mussels lined the benthos, and it was decorated with whelks, sea urchins, and sea cucumbers galore, but nary lobster to be seen. Further studies at Malgus revealed that the lobsters were so abundant that there was fierce competition for food. The lobsters were basically fighting for everything that was there. The only thing that usually survived was sponges and seaweeds, Barkai said, and whatever could hide beneath the kelp. As soon as a juvenile mussel or barnacle tried to settle down, the lobsters scraped it up and ate it. The lobsters were dominating the benthos, he explained. To see what would happen if these lobsters were removed, Barkai put in protective cages with mesh too small for the lobsters to enter. All other species started to flourish, he said. It was clear the lobsters were responsible for the deficit of most life at Magus Island, Branch noted. So, what was different about Marcus? The two islands are so close together, and other than a breakwater connecting Marcus to the mainland, there didn't seem to be any obvious explanation for this stark difference in the number of lobsters. Barkai measured currents, did some sample collection, looked at benthic or seafloor structure, but nothing really stood out as an explanation for the vastly different assemblages of species. He and his colleagues even threw a few lobsters in a cage and showed they could survive just fine in the waters at Marcus. The diverse buffet at Marcus should be an irresistible to any lobsters able to find their way there. So why weren't the hordes at Malgus making the short trip over to feast? After consulting with Branch, Barkai decided to conduct an experiment. A very naive and not really well thought out idea, as he now describes it. He planned to take about a thousand lobsters from Malgus and move them to Marcus to see how they fared. On the day of the experiment, Barkai was alone in the water as he was working with a topside crew that didn't dive, something that would make university dive safety professors extremely uncomfortable nowadays. Of course, this was the 80s, and things were different. First, the boat stopped at Malgus, and Barkai collected the lobsters for transfer. A short, four-kilometer boat ride later, and both he and the lobsters entered the waters by Marcus. And that meant he was the only one to witness what happened next. Visibility was great that day, and virtually the entire sea bottom started to move, he said. That movement was countless whelks. They started to climb onto the newcomers, sticking to their legs. I didn't know then, but they'd started to suck them alive, basically. It was like a horror movie, Barkai said. It actually was a bit frightening to watch. The lobsters simply didn't know how to respond. They were outnumbered and overwhelmed. To my horror, in about 30, 40 minutes, all the lobsters were killed. Barkai managed to bring two whelk-coated lobsters back to the surface to show the crew, which is when the first photo in this piece was shot. The bewilderment on his face says everything. On the ship, they carefully pulled the whelks off, over 300 per lobster. When we removed the whelks from the lobsters, they were empty shells. There was no meat left at all, whatsoever. They were simply empty shells, he recalled. Basically, the only thing that kept them together was the whelks. So the moment we removed the whelks, the lobsters just fell apart. But perhaps the most awful part was seeing up close how the whelks had done the lobsters in. They had penetrated every single soft tissue that they could find with their tubular mouth parts, the lobsters' eyes, joints, anywhere with even a little give. You could see these very long pipes coming from inside the lobster, Barkai explained. The poor lobsters, they didn't have a chance. When he told his advisor what happened, Branch was dumbfounded. I actually said to him, you know, you must have done something wrong, Branch recalled. The results were just too unbelievable. The pair quickly realized that the ravenous whelks, an animal normally on the lobster's menu, were why Marcus Island had no lobsters. That was absolutely shattering because here was a complete reversal of a normal predator-prey relationship, said Branch, and the paper that resulted, published in Science in 1988, was the first study to document such a reversal. The caging studies at Malgus had shown that these predatory whelks and other species happily flourished in the absence of lobsters, 
but they didn't explain why there weren't lobsters at Marcus to begin with. So Barkeye dug into the history of the two islands, and he learned that Marcus actually was a lobster paradise once, just 20 years prior. But that was before the bay was a marine reserve, and Marcus's connection to land made it a popular lobster fishing ground. He suspects that the lobsters were overfished, essentially to local extinction. With lobsters out of the picture thanks to fishermen, everything else was free to settle and grow unencumbered. And they did, until there were so many whelks that the lobsters could not come back. And it wasn't just that the whelks became too numerous. They had an ally against any hungry lobsters that might have happened upon them. Barkai had noticed that in this area, a particular species of whelk was covered in an encrusting bryozoan, a somewhat coral-esque animal. He and Branch's former PhD student, Christopher McQuaid, who was then a postdoc at the University of Cape Town, worked together to show that this bryozoan was protecting the whelks. In feeding experiments, the lobsters generally avoided whelks with the bryozoan on their shells, but happily consumed them if the shells were scraped clean. It was a much more complicated story than we initially thought, explained Branch. Yes, it was true that the whelks were excluding lobsters, but it is probably also true that they could only secure that ascendancy because they were protected by this bryozoan. Branch and Barkai soon realized they were looking at strong evidence for alternative stable states, the somewhat controversial idea that an ecosystem can exist in very different yet completely stable configurations. A lot of scientists are skeptical, said Branch, but further studies on the islands have made a convincing case. Barkai is no longer involved personally in the research. Not long after he obtained his Ph.D., he left academia, though he remains tied to the ocean as the director for OLSPS Marine, a company that specializes in fisheries data management. He still lives in South Africa, but he said the last time he got in the waters of Saldana Bay was nearly two decades ago. But Branch, now an emeritus professor at the University of Cape Town, and his colleagues conducted surveys in 2016, and little has changed. Malgus Island is still dominated by lobsters, Branch said. Their numbers are not as great as they were, but nonetheless, there are still large numbers there. And Marcus still has huge numbers of whelks and no lobsters. So the two very different ecosystems have proven stable for more than 30 years. And the evidence for alternative stable states continues to mount. After he published the findings in Science, Barkai said he was flooded with researchers noting similar predator-prey reversals, especially involving whelks. In many fishing grounds, when you don't have lobster, you get many whelks on the bed instead. So it's obvious that there's some kind of interaction between the two species. The two species are sort of competing between themselves, he said. Research in the decades since has also found other incredible examples of predator-prey role reversals, and it's become clear that they may be more common than previously thought. Barkai and McQuaid's findings can also provide insight into the repercussions of a much more recent phenomenon, the sudden proliferation of lobster in the fishing grounds known descriptively as East of Cape Hanclip. Before 1989, the area was essentially devoid of lobsters. Historically, lobsters were regarded as a West Coast species in South Africa, explained Branch. That all changed in the early 1990s. They had increased very radically to the south, creeping around the tip of the Cape Peninsula onto the southeast coast, he said. And by 1995 or so, the southeast coast had accumulated large numbers of lobsters in an area where they had been very rare before. And when the lobsters moved in, they took over the benthos, exerting top-down control of the community, just like they have for decades at Malgus, Branch's student Laura Blamey found. She was able to make comparisons over time by comparing before they invaded and after they invaded, and over space by comparing areas they had invaded with areas they hadn't invaded, Branch said. And she found that in areas now sporting lobsters, things like urchins and mussels and limpets, they'd all been enormously depleted. Invertebrates other than lobsters declined by 99.3%, according to Blamey's research. And once that happened, the algae those species usually kept in check grew unabated. Kelp abundance increased hugely, Branch said, by 453%, to be precise. It might not sound terrible to have more lobsters around, especially since the population on the West Coast is currently struggling, 
Kreef have declined dramatically due to overfishing and even been recently listed as endangered. And fishers certainly took advantage quickly. The lobsters are now fished heavily in their new southeastern territories. But the expansion of the lobster fishery has come at the cost of an even more lucrative one, abalone. Another one of Branch's students, Elizabeth Day, found that the urchins the lobsters have essentially wiped out are key to the survival of juvenile abalone. The urchins are sheltering places, Branch explained, where young abalone can hide until they're large enough to fend off many of their predators. When urchins disappear, so too do young abalone, Day's research found. If you remove the urchins very quickly, the numbers of juvenile abalone crash, Branch explained. And that means the abalone are getting a double whammy. The adults are being decimated by poachers, and the survival of juveniles is being diminished by the removal of urchins by lobsters. Meanwhile, on the western coast, the lobsters have found a way to persist at low densities. So far, Branch said he hasn't found anywhere where things have shifted the other way, from lobsters to whelks, which is very surprising given that the lobster population is a mere 2.6% or so of its former glory. Barkai was never able to repeat the scale of his experiment. Perhaps unsurprisingly, he was unable to get permits to move thousands of lobsters after what happened. So it remains unknown how rare the lobsters must become, or how abundant whelks with their bryozoan bodyguards have to be, before the marine snails are able to turn on their crustacean predators. It's probably a good thing that such a shift hasn't happened yet, though, because it's not clear how to undo this kind of role reversal, or if that's even possible. There simply isn't a roadmap for reintroducing lobsters to areas dominated by whelks. Still, even if the lobsters are keeping the whelks at bay for now, the possibility of a shift to a snail-covered seabed looms as the battle over the West Coast lobster fishery heats up. For now, limiting or even halting lobster fishing altogether could help lobster populations bounce back, which is why the Worldwide Fund for Nature South Africa faced off in court last week against the Department of Agriculture, Forestry, and Fisheries over the total allowable catch limits for the iconic seafood. WWF is arguing that the limits are too high and that DAF is ignoring scientific advice, a charge the government disputes. If WWF's efforts fail, and they're right about the catch limits being too high, then the lobsters will become even more scarce in years to come. And if that happens, then Branch and other ecologists in South Africa just might get the chance to learn what it takes for the whelks to take over. Located high in the Bighorn Mountains of northern Wyoming, the centuries-old medicine wheel, as it is known today, seems to be a testament to astronomical applications used by people who lived in the northern plains long before white men came on the scene, or even the Crow Indians. But the structure remains as mysterious as Britain's Stonehenge. From MontanaPioneer.com, a story by Pat Hill, The Mystery of the Bighorn Medicine Wheel. The Bighorn Medicine Wheel sits at nearly 10,000 feet above sea level, near the summit of Medicine Mountain, on a ridge offering incredible vistas. The wheel can typically only be reached by human visitors during the warm summer months. Constructed of stones gathered in the vicinity of the landmark, the Medicine Wheel has a diameter of 80 feet, with stones piled inside to form a central, donut-shaped cairn about 12 feet in diameter and two feet high. 28 stone spokes connect the central cairn to the outside circle, and around the circle lie six other stone cairns, some large enough for a person to sit in. The 28 spokes probably correspond to the 28-day lunar cycle, but the number 28 seems to also fit into another part of the astronomical puzzle. The six cairns arranged around the wheel are definitely related to the night skies. Two of the cairns, when lined up with the center cairn, mark the rising and setting summer solstice sun. Cairn pairs also line up to show the once yearly heliacal or dawn risings of certain stars in the summer. The heliacal rising of a star is the day a star can first be seen just before dawn, 
after being behind the sun for a whole season, thus pinpointing the corresponding date. Four stars figure in these observations. Fomalhaut, 28 days before the summer solstice. Aldebaran, rising the two mornings just before solstice. Rigel, 28 days after solstice. And Sirius, rising 28 days after Rigel's pre-dawn appearance. Estimates regarding the age of the Bighorn Medicine Wheel vary, with 1200 AD being the time period when the star alignments with the Cairns were most accurate, according to Jack Robinson, the last archaeoastronomer to publish on the wheel. Slight changes in the Earth's orbit since then have resulted in a not-so-perfect astronomical fit star-wise, but the solstice alignments are still accurate today. With certainty, it is known that the wheel dates to before 1600 AD because it was at the wheel where the crow first arrived and a vision quest at the site caused a crow leader to realize they had found their homeland. The central cairn of the wheel, which may have supported a large wooden pole, is thought to be the oldest part of the structure. It extends below the wheel and wind-blown dust and debris have buried much of it, A bison skull has often been placed on the center cairn during Native American ceremonies. Different groups of Native Americans have utilized the Bighorn Medicine Wheel and other areas of Medicine Mountain for ritualistic purposes over the centuries and continue to do so today. An anonymous Cheyenne elder of the modern era said that the tribes traditionally went and still go to the sacred mountain. The people sought the high mountain for prayer. They sought spiritual harmony with the powerful spirits there. Many offerings have been left on this mountain. Prayers of thanks were offered for all of creation. All of this is done so that spiritual harmony will be our constant companion throughout the year. While some crow people believe that the wheel was built before the light came, other crow legends have the sun god dropping the wheel from the sky and some crow people believe the arrangement of stones was laid down by a Shoshone band known as the Sheep Eaters. But whoever built the medicine wheel left no clue to modern investigators as to its exact use. Today, practitioners of New Age religion as well as Native Americans are drawn to the side of the medicine wheel for ceremonial purposes. The Bighorn Medicine Wheel was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1969, and last year the site was expanded and renamed the Medicine Wheel Medicine Mountain National Historic Landmark. The additional 4,000 acres also contain significant Native American sacred areas, some of which are intact. Medicine Mountain also has geological significance. There are ten places on Earth known as nuclei of continents, where relatively small patches of some of the oldest rocks on Earth are found. These sections of ancient Earth were first cooled on the surface of the planet's crust two to three billion years ago, and overlaying younger rock has worn away. Also known as continental roots, these rocks were part of the supercontinent Gondwanaland, which began to break apart some 300 million years ago and separated into the continents we know today between 65 million to 1 million years ago. The continents continue to drift today, but laid bare for the open eye to see are the layers of time exposed at Medicine Mountain, with the medicine wheel essentially floating on some of the oldest surface stone in existence on the planet. A nearly 360-degree view reveals a steady geological march downward from the summit of Medicine Mountain to the new earth and stone along the valley floors below, a look at the Earth's timeline that is unequaled by the other nine continental routes on the Earth's surface. The Bighorn Medicine Wheel is the best example among several medicine wheels scattered across the American West and Canada. To reach the wheel, Take U.S. Highway 14A west out of Lovell, Wyoming. A journey up the extremely steep western slope of the Bighorn Range is made via an incredible set of switchbacks that snake their way up the mountain. Turn off Highway 14 onto Forest Road, where parking's available at a visitor center located near the wheel. A walk of a mile or so is required from the visitor center to the site, but handicapped visitors can drive directly to the wheel. 
The roads are usually closed from October until May, so plan your visit accordingly and get in touch with your spiritual self at Wyoming's Medicine Wheel. Here's one from Curseland favorite, expatalachians.com. Biplanes over Blair, calling in the Air Force for the mine wars. A crowd of onlookers in Charleston, West Virginia, gazed upward as the first series of black dots appeared on the horizon on September 9, 1921. As the dots crept closer, they became biplanes roaring toward the makeshift airstrip in Kanawha City, then a small community on the eastern outskirts of Charleston. To the cheers of the crowd, the first de Havilland 4B fighter planes of the U.S. Army Air Service's 88th Air Squadron touched down in West Virginia, bringing modern military power to that summer's violence in southern West Virginia. A week earlier, Assistant Chief of the United States Army Air Service, General William Billy Mitchell, arrived in Kanawha City on August 26th. Mitchell had led the Army Air Service at the end of World War I, and three years following the armistice was still eager to prove the use of air power to the high command in Washington, D.C. While Mitchell and his airmen had demonstrated the use of aircraft in naval warfare a few weeks earlier when they sank the captured German battleship, Ostfriesland, off the coast of Virginia, he was now focused on proving the usefulness of air power in dispersing civil disturbances particularly in remote areas, such as central Appalachia. To the gaggle of reporters who met Mitchell upon his arrival, the general was quite clear about his intentions. We wouldn't try to kill these people first, Mitchell said. We had dropped tear gas all over the place. If they refused to disperse, then we'd open up with artillery and everything. These people, Mitchell referred to, were the miners of the Kanawha and New River coal fields who had begun a march south to liberate the striking miners in Mingo County, which had been placed under martial law. By 1921, much of the state's coal-producing regions had been unionized by the United Mine Workers of America. However, the mine operators in Mingo and a few surrounding counties resisted such efforts to the point of violence. The Matawan Massacre happened the previous summer, leading to the deaths of seven Baldwin Feltz agents under contract from the coal operators to carry out evictions on striking miners. The shootout in Matawan and corresponding fallout escalated the tensions in Mingo County, and another battle, this time with state police to reinforce the Baldwin Feltz agents, occurred the following year. Unable to control the situation, West Virginia's newly inaugurated governor, Ephraim Morgan, re-established the National Guard and imposed martial law in Mingo County, ironically making his proclamation on the one-year anniversary of the Matawan Massacre. The presence of state police and National Guardsmen only escalated the situation, as the state's law enforcement acted more as agents of the mine operators than an independent force of peace. By late August, after multiple skirmishes between miners and the law, President Warren G. Harding finally succumbed to the pleas of Governor Morgan and sent Brigadier General Harry H. Bandholtz to Charleston to address the situation. Arriving in the pre-dawn hours of Friday, August 26th, just hours before Mitchell, Bandholtz immediately met with state and union leadership separately to de-escalate the situation. While Mitchell was anxious to demonstrate the deadly force he could deploy from above, Bandholtz urged restraint, hoping that the miners would stand down on their own without the use of federal troops. That seemed to be the likely conclusion by the end of the weekend, and most generals returned to Washington with reports of peaceful resolution in tow. These reports, however, were premature. By midday on Monday, August 29th, a skirmish between miners and state police had reignited the fuse and the miners' army had turned back toward Mingo County. Directly in their path was Logan County, another holdout of non-unionized mines. The sheriff of Logan County, Don Chafin, 
was rabidly anti-union and had raised a small force to supplement existing state and local law enforcement in the county, declaring that no armed mob will cross Logan County. Chaffin's 3,000 men had dug in along Blair Mountain. As the first columns of the redneck army of miners approached the ridge, Chaffin's men began firing small arms and machine guns from entrenched positions. The Battle of Blair Mountain had begun. Bandholtz returned to West Virginia on Thursday, September 1st, as the battle was still underway. While still hoping to avoid a pitched battle involving federal troops, he wasted no time in ordering three regiments of infantry to converge on West Virginia's southern coal fields to pacify the area. Meanwhile, Mitchell, not wanting to miss a second opportunity, ordered the 88th Squadron of the Army Air Service to West Virginia. The art of flying was still relatively primitive in 1921. The open-air cockpits and lack of instrumentation forcing pilots to fly lower to the ground, and only during daylight hours. All 17 of the 88th Squadron's DH-4Bs arrived in their stopover point of Roanoke, Virginia, without issue. The second leg of their journey, however, would not be as easy. Taking off toward Kanawha City on the morning of Friday, September 2nd, the size of the squadron had already been reduced by two due to mechanical issues. Of the 15 planes that set off from Roanoke, one crashed during takeoff, and two men were lost in fog and ended up in Tennessee. The two lost planes then crashed the next morning en route to West Virginia. Fortunately, none of the crew members were seriously injured in any of the mishaps, and 11 DH-4Bs made it to Kanawha City. Upon their arrival to West Virginia, the chance of aerial bombardment by the air service was quickly snuffed out. Fully loaded with bombs and machine guns when they left their home base of Langley, Virginia, the 88th Squadron's planes were stripped of all weaponry before flying over Blair Mountain. Bandholtz's orders were clear. You will, under no circumstances, drop any bombs or fire any machine guns or do anything to unnecessarily excite the invaders he wrote in a dispatch. While the 88th Squadron was used to assess the situation on Blair Mountain from above, there would be no demonstration of the Air Service's armed abilities in West Virginia. There were, however, a trio of private biplanes rented by Sheriff Chafin that were not under the strict orders of restraint from General Bandholtz. On September 2nd, the same day as the Squadron's arrival in West Virginia, Chafin ordered his own small air force to drop gas and makeshift bombs on the miners' positions on Blair Mountain. Though none of these aerial assaults struck their intended targets, Mitchell's braggadocious comments to the Charleston press the week before led many to believe that the Army had conducted the bombing runs, a myth that remains today. Rather, the only casualties directly related to the airplanes in the West Virginia mine wars were the deaths of three airmen on Friday, September 2nd. In addition to the 88th Squadron's 17 DH-4B fighter planes, Mitchell had also dispatched four Martin MB-2 bombers from Maryland, which arrived in Kanawha City on September 1st. Like the fighter squadron, the bomber unit was incomplete, with one bomber forced to land in Fairmont, West Virginia, after being blown off course. Once Bandholtz made it clear that the Army Air Service would be used strictly for reconnaissance, Mitchell ordered the MB-2s back to Maryland the following day. Flying through a storm south of Charleston, Lieutenant Harry L. Speck lost control of his plane, which fell in a nosedive into a densely wooded hill. While the other two aircraft were able to make safe emergency landings, three of the four crew in the crashed plane, including Speck, were killed. The fourth, Corporal Alexander Hazelton, was paralyzed, but rescued two days later, once local authorities found the crash site. While seemingly an exciting series of escalations, the Battle of Blair Mountain and the Miners' March on Mingo ended abruptly over the weekend of September 3rd and 4th as federal troops from Ohio, Kentucky, and New Jersey arrived by train. 
The Army was seen as a neutral force, not under the influence of coal operators and a formidable and unwanted opponent by the miners. Many of the men on Blair Mountain had served in World War I, and at the very least, nearly all considered themselves patriotic. Fighting corrupt state forces was one thing, but fighting the United States Army was beyond the fire in the miners' bellies. By September 5th, nearly all of their weapons had been turned in, and most were on their way home. Despite the loss of three of his planes, and the fact that a full third of the force never even reached Kanawha City, General Mitchell spun the mission as a success. He later called the expedition an excellent example of the potentialities of air power that can go wherever there is air. He continued to find controversy throughout the remainder of his career, often butting heads with his superiors in Washington. Five years later, in 1926, General Mitchell resigned from the Army after being court-martialed and suspended from active duty. The use of air power by the United States Army during the West Virginia Mine Wars still stands as the only time that American military aircraft were used during a domestic civil disturbance. Includes episode 31 of Curseland. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, please email feedback at curse.land. The show is also on Twitter at Curseland, so you can message me on there if you'd prefer. Till next time, I'll talk to you all later.